with the media almost 100% against him. And with, I would have said the, the elite as it were, were uh, coming in consistently, uh, uniformly against him, and he still came fairly close. I don't know whether the story that the way they got all those files was that Hunter Biden carelessly left a laptop in a, to be repaired and never picked it up or not. But it doesn't really matter very much. That is to say, the counter argument was this is Russian counterintelligence, so to speak. But the important question was not where did the files come from, but were they true? A good place to start, David, is just this incredible year that 2020 has been. And it seemed to be since maybe 20, 2016, things like the Brexit vote, Donald Trump, it seemed to be finally it was getting through to the sort of technocratic controlling order that, that people are happy and they crave less government and a bit more freedom and a bit less of being told what to do all the time. And then coronavirus has come along and you know, all these, I don't know what the word is for them, these little authoritarians from all sorts of different parts of society have sort of allied. And it's been a terrible year for the for the cause of freedom. So why don't we start with that? Do you have any views on that? Not really. I Part of what I'm curious about is what the after effects are going to be, because I can see it going in either direction. On the one hand, people might say, well, look, in this emergency, it was necessary for government to do these things. So therefore, we had to put up with them, but they're really terrible. And therefore, we, we want to have less and less government control. Or you could see, well, government's clearly entitled to do it. It saved lots of lives. Therefore, next time or over some issue like climate or flu or something else, government can keep bossing us around. And I find it very hard to predict how people in general are going to act after this is over. There are clearly a lot of people who are very unhappy about it, but there are a lot of people the other way as well. I think there are. The, I, think it, I think in the US, as I read it, what was pushing Trump was less a resentment of big government than a resentment of, there's a term you may be familiar with, flyover country, which was in use before Trump. And it's basically the parts of the US that aren't New York and San Francisco, how they think New York and San Francisco view them. Mm. So that it was sort of the idea that there is an elite of people who not only are powerful, but are arrogant, who, who look down on the rest of us. And people don't like being looked down on. Uh, and the result, I suspect that, that part of the reason Trump was so surprisingly successful in 2016, both in the nomination and the election, was that there were a whole lot of people who felt that way, and uh, that the rest of the political establishment hadn't noticed it yet, so to speak, and he was pulling off them and thus adding those people to the people who normally vote Republican. Uh, 
I don't know enough about whether in, how much of that's true in Brexit as, as well, whether, whether to what extent it was sort of a revolt. As I see it, as it were, not so much against big government, because after all, Trump was in favor of restrictions on immigration and restrictions on trade. He wasn't really a small government person, but he was somebody who sort of positioned himself as I'm attacking the elites that scorn you. Uh, therefore, I'm on your side, and I think that was yeah. Um, there's there's several things there. He was definitely telling a lot of people who needed telling where to go. He sort of told them where to go. He wound up all the right people, yeah. and Trump had that quality. And so this sort of overlooked middle flyover country probably saw him as their champion. And there's definitely an overlooked white working class in the UK that that voted Brexit. There was it was a definitely, you know, a, there was a great big F off, an underlying F off yeah. to it as well, for sure. Um, and, and you're part right, of what's, Trump, part of what's Trump wasn't a small government guy, but it was a step in the right. It was a step. There was something anti-authoritarian about Trump, even if it was just a different type of authoritarianism. May, maybe, although on the other hand, everybody is rhetorically anti-authoritarian. Right. I mean, Bush was certainly rhetorically on that side, but he increased, not decreased the size of government uh, with a different excuse. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, you could even say the same about Thatcher and Reagan. I mean, even though they were nominally champions of free markets, the state grew uh, when they were in charge. Yeah, I don't know about Thatcher's case. My impression is that in Reagan's case, it almost certainly grew less than it otherwise would have, but it did did can, can, yeah. can continue to grow. Now, in a sense, one thing that I, <coughs> that I find mildly encouraging about the U.S. situation is how well Trump did this year. That is, he lost, which is fine. I don't have any particular preference for him over Biden. But the fact that with the media almost 100% against him, and with, I would have said, the the elite, as it were, were uh, coming in consistently, uh, uniformly against him, and he still came fairly close. Uh, that that I've what I've been saying is that I don't think that the election was stolen in any technical sense. That is, I doubt there was any more fraud than usual. Uh, it was stolen in the sense that various people acted in ways I consider unethical, that made it made it more likely that Biden would win. And the the two examples that struck me. Uh, one of them was the attempt to bury the whole laptop story that uh, the, I don't know whether the story that the way they got all those files was that Hunter Biden carelessly left a laptop in a, to be repaired and never picked it up or not. But it doesn't really matter very much. That is to say, the counter argument was this is Russian counterintelligence, so to speak. But the important question was not where did the files come from, but were they true? All right, if those really were accurate accounts of the relevant email, then Biden has been lying and claiming he had no connection with his son's uh, acti commercial activities. Uh, Biden was in fact trying to get paid off for using his political influence. Now, none of that is illegal. I don't think he was even, I don't think he had any legal any position at the time. It was, he was no longer vice president, uh, but it's, so I'm not even sure it's unusual. I suspect a lot of politicians do that. You know, Hillary Clinton got whatever $100,000 speech fees or something close to that. Uh, 
but I think it's sufficiently negative so that if, if, if widely publicized, it would have cost Biden votes. And the major media did their best to pretend it hadn't happened. Uh, as far as I could tell, I never saw any reporter say to Biden, is the supposed content of these laptops true? All right, he, Biden's line was always it's Russian disinformation, but that doesn't answer the question. Uh, and if you ask him that question, then either he has to say it's not true, and then he's in trouble if any of the things turn out to be provable by other sources, or he says it's true, and then he's, he, he's in fact looking pretty bad. The other thing was that, as you probably know, it was agreed in advance that the evidence on whether the vaccine worked would not be looked at until the day after the election. The uh, agreement that had apparently been made by FDA and the vaccine makers was that once there were, I believe, 62 infections, that would be enough to tell whether the vaccine was effective by comparing the number of vaccinated to the number of control group. When they unblinded the data, there were 90 some. So that means that if they had done the obvious thing that you would want to do if you wanted to find out as soon as possible, which is to test each case as it comes in, and when the number gets to 62, you, you do the statistics and publish the results, that would have happened before the election. That Trump was widely mocked for saying there would be a vaccine by election day. In fact, there was a vaccine by election day. There wasn't a vaccine that that the regulators had permitted to be distributed. There probably wasn't enough of the vaccine to vaccinate very many people, but in the sense of knowing, aha, we've got one. Well, voters, I think part of the odd but rational behavior of rationally ignorant voters is that they use how are things going as a proxy for how good the government is, all right? It's a very poor proxy because how, how well things are going depends on lots and lots of things other than who's been president for the last few years. But given that it's not easy to know, sort of for the random voter, is the fact that things are bad in this way, Trump's fault or Obama's fault or the fault of fate or whatever, it's not only unreasonable to say, well, if things are going well, we vote for the incumbent. If things are voting badly, we going badly, we vote against the incumbent. And the fact that there was a 90-some percent effective vaccine would be one respect in which things were going much better than they seemed to be. And I wouldn't be surprised if that would have reversed the, the outcome. But all of that is legal. That is, it's not as if the vaccine people have an obligation to, to yeah. do it in the one way or another. It's not as if the New York Times has an obligation to put hard questions to Biden. Uh, so, so that's- Is it fair that, to say that, sorry, is it fair to say that had there been no coronavirus, Trump would have won quite Almost certainly. Yeah, no, almost certainly. That's right. Uh, despite the opposition. And did you read what? Did you read the statistic that came up that in two or three of the swing states, and I forget which, had there been no Libertarian Party and the Libertarian Party, you know, which took maybe 5% of the vote or whatever it was, Wasn't had there been no Liberty? Okay, but whatever the percentage yep. was, had there been no Libertarian Party and that vote would have voted Republican, that would have been enough to win Trump. In, <laughs> so in, effectively, the Libertarian Party lost it for Trump. If, 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 I think in the case of Georgia, that would be the case, if I remember the numbers. I don't know if it was the case in, in uh, Pennsylvania, might have been Pennsylvania. I don't know about Michigan, but no, but, but I don't think, I, I wouldn't assume that most of those voters would have voted for Trump. I think if I take my case, uh, 
I wouldn't have voted for anybody if, if, if I hadn't voted for the libertarian candidate. Now my vote yeah. didn't matter because I'm in California, which is a reliably democratic state nowadays. Uh, but, but, but no, it's, it's very hard to tell what the net effect of the LP is, is on elections for, for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, yeah. But in any case, as long as, as far as I'm concerned, as long as the, as the Republicans take one, at least one of the Georgia Senate seats, the outcome is about as tolerable as I could reasonably hope for, that uh, what I want is divided government, because I, it seems to me that Trump is bad in some ways and Biden is bad in other ways, and mostly I want to limit the amount of damage they can do. Uh, but uh, so anyway, the, the yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. So they presumably somebody could could make an attempt to poll uh, libertarian voters and see who they would have voted for. But I haven't at least seen anybody anybody doing that. Yeah. But I don't I don't think okay. I don't think they got as much as five percent in any presidential. Uh, there was one Senate race that I was sort of interested in because it was a race where the Democratic candidate had withdrawn. So it was a two-party race between the Libertarian and the Republican. And I'm trying to remember which state it was in. Uh, and, and the Libertarian was quite an attractive candidate. I actually gave him money. That's the only candidate I gave money to for this, this election. <laughs> and I think he ended up with like 35% of the vote, which is very good for a Libertarian. But those, okay. may, those may all be Democrats who were just voting against the Republican. Uh, but I yeah. thought that my dream outcome for the election was for the one libertarian senator to hold exactly the balance. If it came out 50-49 with the vice president on the same side as the 49. But that, of course, didn't happen. <laughs> that would have been it's not likely to happen. Uh, Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, let's... um often come in threes but i think i've only i'm done two that time let me um let's just change tack slightly now away from american politics and let's imagine you were a young anarcho-capitalist a young libertarian in your early 20s or mid-20s say starting out on your life and you can go anywhere in the world you haven't got any family to tie you down where in the world would you go and so I suppose the, the question is, what is the most libertarian place in the world? Or what is potentially uh, the most libertarian no, place in the world? But, when I say potentially, would, what is going to be in five yeah, years' time? That's, inter an inter that's an interesting question, but it's not the same as your first question, because where I would go would depend on, to take the most obvious thing, I'm much more comfortable in places where they speak English. I'm not fluent okay. in any foreign language. so it, Okay, so let's assume you're an English-speaking libertarian. Oh, English-speaking. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And the answer is, I don't know. I might go to New Hampshire. Uh, New Hampshire is a state, as you may know, where there's been a project for quite a while to get libertarians to move there in the hope of getting enough libertarians to influence state politics. And the total number who have moved is still a very small fraction of the electorate, even in a small state. On the other hand, a lot more of them are politically active than of the population in general, so they may be having a little bit of an effect now. But I must say that part of the reason why I would be tempted by New Hampshire has nothing to do with the state politics. 
It's because it's a place where there are a whole bunch of libertarians. They're in contact with each other. So that if you imagine moving to a strange place, being part as it were of a social network of people who have a lot in common, right? If I was a young libertarian man of 22, I'd be looking for a wife or a girlfriend. That's much easier to find if you're in a community with lots of links to people who have a lot of stuff in common with you. So I don't think that as your hypothetical young libertarian man, certainly how free a society would be one, would be one variable. I would be unlikely to move to China, for example, even though it's a very interesting country. Uh, my guess is that the most promising country at the moment is Estonia from the political standpoint. It's a very scary place to be because it's sitting next to Russia and uh, can't defend itself if Russia invades it. But my impression is that there's a lot of libertarian sympathy there Yeah, the sort of in the society as a whole, partly because they've had firsthand experience of communism. Uh, mm -hmm. But other than that, I don't think I know enough. That is, you know, New Zealand is an interesting place. Uh, Australia is an interesting place. The US has the advantage of being huge and therefore it consists of a whole lot of different places. And you could certainly find places in the US where there were lots of people and where the government was no more oppressive than average, so to speak. Uh, I think there are a number of states that don't have income taxes, for example, uh, in the US. Uh, but, but you still have to pay tax at the federal level, don't you? Yes, and you, and you pay property tax or sales tax. There are, these aren't places without taxes. They're just places without income yeah. taxes. And so, yeah, I haven't been in that situation. So, but, but, but as I realistically, I think that finding the most libertarian society would not be my, my first priority. You know, there somebody is trying to set up some seasteading now. Maybe if I was that young, I would think that would be fun to participate in and see if we could mm. make that work. Uh, but as I say, I think I think the Free State Project in New Hampshire would be pretty tempting. Uh, let me let me give you my answer to that, because yes. it, it leads us into a sure. big theme of yours, which is new technology and and how technology is simultaneously liberating us and entrapping us. Yes, right. <laughs> um, and I think the, if I was a younger man, I would be looking to become a sovereign individual, uh, to use Lord Rees-Mogg's term. Mm -hmm. I would looking, be looking to become a digital nomad. I would be looking to become a, a resident of nowhere. Um, and I think we're moving into a, a new world of, you know how more and more people are leaving traditional employment and becoming freelancers contingent yes, workers sure. and so on and digital technology enables them to do their job from mm. anywhere in the world mm. and once you're on the move if you're in no country for more than 189 days a year you're under no obligation to pay taxes anywhere or your tax liabilities become a lot vaguer than they would be if you were definitely so how do you how do you cross borders without a passport ah well you can have a passport of somewhere but not necessarily us is different because thanks to uh, your glorious leader abraham lincoln who was looking to in to protect his tax revenue during the american civil war an american citizen wherever he is in the world is obliged to, to pay taxes to america if sure. he wants to maintain his american citizenship right. but that doesn't apply to other countries yes but um, all i'm saying is there's going to be some country which thinks you're a citizen of it 
Well, you, I, I think you can have an EU passport, for example, or a British passport and be non-DOM. I don't I think know. that's possible. If you don't, um, and you see, what, this is, this is one what of the tempt, What has tempted me a little bit uh, would be the idea of having duals, having multiple citizenship. Yeah. That uh, according to my elder son, he researched the matter and we could claim Hungarian citizenship. And the, the apparently, I, I discovered some of this when I was visiting in Brazil some years ago, that as you probably know, there are a number of European countries which take the position that if you have an ancestor from that country, not too far back, you yeah, can be- Yeah, two a, generations. I think it depends probably on the country, but yeah. Uh, so that- Yeah, I could be, that, I could be, an, I know that I could be an Italian citizen, for example. The, the, the talking to the Brazilians, uh, that that a lot of them have either Spanish or Italian ancestors. Uh, both of those countries do that apparently. And German. Yeah, I don't. I, I suppose many of them do. I don't remember if any of the ones I talked to did. And that I meant. That, I think there's quite a few Germans who went there after World War II. That could so, be that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So 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 that means that they could be EU citizens, which yeah. gives them a whole whole bunch of places they can work or live. They were Brazilian citizens. Brazil is part of a <clears throat> sort of South American common market, which is, I think, a good deal less less developed than the EU, but but would give them some multiple countries. And I thought that was interesting. And in our case, uh, none of my ancestors are really Hungarian. Uh, however, apparently Hungary takes the position that if you were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that counts. And uh, according to Patry, somebody he knows in Hungary, I think, had checked up and there is documentation for, I suppose, probably my grandmother on one side or the other being born somewhere in, I, th I think, I think, I believe though I am not sure that both sides of my family are from places that at some point were in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Although I thought of, of my mother's ancestors as being from either Poland or Russia, but I think it may be area that's now Ukraine, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, so that at least according to him, if we really wanted to, we could get Hungarian citizenship. I could surely yeah. get Israeli citizenship. Uh, so that would be sort of neat. And if I were younger, I would be tempted to do it. As it is, I'm not sure it's worth the yeah. trouble. I would, I would, in this, I would play every uh, relative card you can play and have as many nationalities as possible. Yeah. But but I, I'm, I, I, I need to research this better, but I think... The, the prediction of Lord Rees-Mogg in his book, The Sovereign Individual, which was written in the late 90s, but it was quite prophetic, is we have this workforce, this growing workforce of digital nomads, and, yes. and they feel no obligation to their country of birth because they no longer live there. Often it was high, high house prices and low wages that drove yeah. them away in the first place. Yeah. If you think, you know, new jets are going to be in place pretty soon, we can travel to Europe, to China in five hours. We're going to have 5G internet. All these things make the life of the yeah. digital nomad. And, no, I agree. You know, we go to Lis yeah. yeah, you know, we go to Lisbon and then it's, you know, there's a really good scene in Chiang Mai. So we go to Chiang Mai for a bit and then, oh, Cartagena looks good. We go there. Do you know what I mean? And it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good life. Well, and there, there are advantages and disadvantages. It depends partly on how much of the rest of the world is doing it. Because if I, let me start with the, 
simplest old fashioned thing, which is that I've been planting fruit trees in my yard for the last 20 some years. And it's been very convenient when we were self quarantining. Uh, at the moment, yeah. I've got persimmons, pomegranates, uh, avocados, and one or two other things ripe. And you can't do that if you keep moving around the world. And for most people, fruit trees aren't very important, but relationships are. And if most of the rest of the world is still immobile, as it were, it's a lot easier to build up a network of friends and uh, such if you're in one place and associating with the same people. So now you can do it, you could do it online as well. But certainly uh, a number of my friendships are people I've never met. Uh, who I've only only interacted with online. So no, your your suggestion is an intriguing one, and it's possible that I would do that. The I don't know. I mean, when at, at this point, I generally limit my travel, my speaking trips to about two weeks, on the grounds that by that time I'm beginning to feel sort of tired of moving from one place to another and and not having a having a base. Uh, mm -hmm. So I don't. The I other haven't thing tried, about this I, new. I understand. The other thing about this new nomadic workforce, and I know this is another big subject of yours, is that the estimates are already over 50% of them operate in the crypto economy in some way. And I'm not saying, you know, they solely operate in the yeah. crypto economy, but they will own some Bitcoin or some other sure. cryptocurrencies and they will transact in them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the why I'm particularly excited about this new sovereign workforce and the estimates are that by 2035 the global working the global workforce will be six billion and of that global workforce something like 50 percent will be freelance contingent multiple income streams that kind of thing um so you know one half and of that 50 percent one third will be nomadic notice so that, that there's one there's one indirect benefit if people choose. I think I, my guess is that those are too high estimates, though I could be wrong. But the one indirect advantage is that it gives an incentive for countries to have low tax rates. Yeah. The do precisely you, do you, that's what you, I was coming to. Do you read Parkinson? See Northcott no. Parkinson. No, I don't. You should read him. He was an English academic, lived actually in Singapore, I think. Uh, yeah. Who wrote. He was a political scientist, I think, and he wrote serious, wrote humorous essays making serious points. Mm -hmm. And his most famous one is Parkinson's Law. Parkinson's Law has two different statements. One of them is work expands to fill the time available. Yeah, and the, the I'm other, discovering that in lockdown. The other is that the number of people employed by a bureaucracy increases at a constant rate, independent of whether they're amount of work to be done increases, decreases, or where there's any work at all. And it sounds like a joke, and then he gives you his data. And he has figures on the number of people employed by the British Colonial Office during the time the British Empire was vanishing. And he has figures on the number of, on the onshore establishment of the British Navy during the time when England went from the greatest naval power in the world to barely able to beat Argentina. And in both cases, the numbers keep going up. I but think we beat another... Argentina quite comfortably. But, <laughs> but, but he had. And remember, Argentina was quite mighty once. But Argentina is hardly a nation that's in the ascendancy. No, but, but, <laughs> but, but he all he has a different essay 
about where we're assessing taxation. And he's got this wonderful passage. He's too optimistic about the numbers, but his, the, the passage, is, he, what he's saying is, the productive people of the world have discovered by long and bitter experience that they will usually have to give up about 10% of their income to some gangster feudal lord or department of internal revenue. It matters little what you call it. When the rates get higher than that, the Israelites start looking at the Atlas. There are probably better places to be than Egypt. And his 10% was too optimistic, but it seemed to me that the basic point is a good point that one constraint on government is migration. Uh, in fact, my first journal article was in part about that in, from a historical standpoint. Uh, and that therefore, if you're right, that you end up with a lot of people who are very mobile, that will mean that things are better off for the people who aren't mobile as well, because that will give governments to an incentive to compete on low taxes uh, or low or high taxes and high levels of services. They, they, they've got the alternative. Yeah. That, but but uh, the way I put it sometimes is in the limiting case where everybody's doing that, governments are just landlords. That all they have is control over physical land and they're competing with other landlords to get your custom. And at that point, they're not really a problem. But I don't think it's going to go that far. But but no, I agree that certainly no, that what you're describing is a real option for some people. Yeah, it's going to be, it, I agree that those numbers that I've stated may be too large, although there are, I have followed the logic of how those numbers yeah. were reached. And it is, it's a viable argument. You, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a case to that argument, but I agree it's probably too high. But we are going to see a, whether it's 1 billion or, you know, several hundred million or whatever it is, a mobile digital workforce in yes. the future. It's, it's the fastest growing sector of the workforce and it will continue to grow. Yes. Bizarrely, with COVID-19 and the adoption of remote working, this workforce is less mobile because they can't travel because of COVID-19, but more people have discovered that they can work remotely yes. and more employers have, have, remote working has become normalized. Yes, and correct. you know, I use the example of, of, of friends of mine who are a pair of solicitors, quite successful solicitors um, in London. And I talked to them the other day, and I was like, "Where are you?" And they were in the south of France. And I was like, well, what, "What are you doing there?" And they basically disappeared there in May and never came back. And they've been running their um, legal practice quite successfully from the south of France. Um, so that's one example. I was delighted that you cited that example of the Israelites moving out of Egypt when. The burdens of taxation get too extreme. Um, this book that you can see here, it's called Daylight Robbery. And it's a book, my last book was all about how tax, it's all about the past, present and future of taxation. I'm glad you're using the, the right term. I'm now. glad you're using the right terminology because the phrase among American libertarians is taxation is theft. And that's wrong because the tradition, insofar as there's a distinction between theft and robbery, theft is secret taking. And there are some taxation which is secret, but most taxation is open, and therefore the appropriate term really is robbery and not theft. Well, daylight robbery comes from the window. That expression comes from the window tax, when people blocked up their windows to avoid yep. paying for avoid paying this tax, and yep. were thus robbed of their daylight. Um, but anyway, one of the cases I make is that behind every um, great event in history pretty much if you dig around you will find an untold tax story every uh -huh. war every revolution and yes. and and in the case of the founding of the great religions 
had, you know, Judaism was built. Had, had, you, had, had, you ever by, had you ever by any unlikely chance read my first published economics journal article, which is a theory of the size and shape of nations, which ultimately in a sense comes down to taxation. It's, I started out with a puzzle that nobody else seemed to have noticed, which was when the Roman empire fell, why did it break? Why wasn't it succeeded by another state of the same size? And so I came up with an economic model of what determines the size and shape of nations in which you think of each government as trying to collect the maximum net, net resources, net of collection costs, that you imagine if there are two governments and some land in between them, each government says to itself, if I controlled this land, how much larger would my revenue, net revenue be forever? That's the largest amount I'll pay to get it whether you're paying in terms of fighting a war or diplomacy or whatever else. So then the question is, why is a piece of land worth more to one country than to another? And my, my starting answer, the, the initial situation is, suppose what you're taxing is trade. Think about a trade route with 10 countries along it. It pays each individual country to tax above the joint maximum, because when we raise our, our custom doles, we get all the extra revenue, but the cost of the reduced amount of trade is shared with all the countries. So that means that that trade route is worth more to one country than to 10. Because one country can put set up the, uh, the revenue, ma revenue maximizing tax rate. Consequently, if the main source of government revenue is, is trade, you would expect large countries oriented along trade routes. And the argument I make is that that was true for the Roman Empire very largely, not the only thing it taxed, that for various reasons after the fall of Roman Empire, East-West Mediterranean trade collapsed. And that I think is something historians agree on, though they don't agree on the reasons. There's a famous thesis by a medieval historian but may have been wrong about the Muslims closing the Christian trade essentially, uh, <clears throat> that once it collapsed, what was available to be taxed was, was rent, was land value. There is no advantage to big countries for land value. 10 small countries can collect the same amount of, of, of mm -hmm. uh, taxing the rent as, they, as, as one large one. If you assume diseconomies of administration, then once you cut out the trade, size of country collapses then what happens over time? One thing that happens is the trade starts reviving so countries get bigger. But the more interesting thing that happens in the last few hundred years is that incomes get high enough so you can tax labor, that incomes get far enough above subsistence so it becomes practical to tax labor. If you're taxing labor, the limit is now migration. And there are three solutions to the problem of, from the standpoint of the government, of how to keep its, how to how to keep the people it's taxing under its control. One of them is to have very big countries, so it's a long distance to the border for most people. One of them is to build a wall. That was the Soviet solution. It's a very expensive solution, but the elegant solution is to draw your national boundaries along linguistic and cultural boundaries so that all the places your people want to live are inside your country. What Frenchman would want to live in a place where they speak German? So I claim that this explains the rise of ethnic nationalism in the, in, 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 in the I guess, 18th and 19th century, which is sort of a historical fact, factoid. 
And I actually have evidence that is not very good evidence, but I used uh, historical atlases. And I think I can show that as trade, that, that, that as, 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 as nations get larger in sort of late middle ages Renaissance, they are non-randomly oriented along rivers uh, rivers being the main trade routes until we do have railroads, water transport is much cheaper than land transport. And I think I can show that you get two periods when the correlation between language and nation goes up. One of them is the one I expected, which is I think 18th, 19th century. And the other is after the Black Death, because the effect of the Black Death uh, is that the amount of land is the same, the amount of capital goods are the same, the amount of people is fewer, therefore incomes go up. And when the incomes go up, it now becomes possible to tax them. So anyway, that was my, you can, you can if you're interested in the article, it's on my webpage, you can read it. No, I'll actually take a look. I love it. I mean, and the next stage after incomes go up and you tax them too much, you get a peasant's revolt. That's one which, possibility. Which, which, that, that's, I mean, that's what happened after the Black Death. Well, but I think I think I think that what's happening is a little subtler than the pleasant revolt. That happens too, and that is one of the standard factoids about the Middle Ages is that peasants were bound to the land. And there's a book on French rural society by a very prominent French historian, no longer alive, where he claims that he could find no documentary evidence of that prior to something like the 14th or 15th century. And what I think is going on. Is that the, is that the earlier medieval situation is that the uh, amount charged by a feudal lord to his peasants was limited by, in effect, the economic rent of the land, because you can't take your land with you if you leave. That what happens with the Black Death is that the feudal dues are customary. They aren't easily changed as the market changes. Suddenly, rents go down because there are fewer people for the same amount of land and wages go up. A lot of the feudal dues were in labor rather than in money. So that meant that a feudal dues that had been at or below the rent of land before the Black Death had now been pushed above it. At which point the obvious solution is not to revolt, it's to find another Lord who will give you a better deal. Because you have a situation where the Lords have uncultivated land They'd like to borrow to, to steal peasants from the next lord over. And I think it's at that point that the lords start trying to get the royal government to enforce their control over the migration of their own peasants. Because each of them wants to keep his peasants, but is perfectly willing to steal his neighbor's peasants. Uh, so that, that's at least my conjecture of what's happening there, that the whole business of tying them to the land is an attempt, not always successful, to prevent competition among feudal lords uh, to sort of cartelize as it were the lord industry uh, but anyway that's i think i discussed that in the in the in the article too. yeah yeah no i mean that's that's kind of precisely what happened is the the black death wiped out the workforce so the value of labor increased um and the value of land decreased and the value of land decreased um the peasants who had previously paid uh their taxes with their three and a half days labor a week uh, in order to, for the privilege of being able to work their own bit of land for another three and a half days, suddenly found the value of their labor increase and were able to actually start charging for their labor. So they started handling money for the very first time. 
They started developing other skills. We saw the rise of a lot of artisans. And then we saw the poll taxes of Richard II uh, in the early 1380s. And, and prior to that, lots of sumptuary laws, you know, limiting how peasants were able to dress, limiting the type of food they were able to eat, all sorts of things trying to press them down. Then we got the poll taxes of the early 1380s, and then we had the Peasants' Revolt, certainly in England. And the Peasants' Revolt in Europe happened a bit, bit, bit earlier. I'm, I'm not so sure of the history of that. But no, the, um, the, the yes. Black Death only arrives in 1347. Uh, That's right. And, and the Peasants' Revolt was 1380. Yeah, you know, by that time there would have been sizable die off. By that time, of course, it keeps going yeah. for a long time with with uh, repeated episodes, as it were. Second waves. Yes, right, and third. To wave. use the modern That's parlance. Right. Yeah, but the, of course, um, so, by by the standards of 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 the Black Death, COVID is pretty minor. I would say so. I would say so. Um, it's funny the. I was one of the things I was discussing. I, I, I don't want to talk about this because I want to go somewhere else. But one of the things I was, I don't think COVID nineteen or the government reaction to COVID nineteen could have possibly happened in any other age but today, because simply the communication infrastructure wasn't there to fuel the 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 panic, the reaction, whatever you want to call it. It just it couldn't have happened thirty or forty years ago. It would have it would have come a lot more entrenched. And perhaps even pass through before people had start, started regulating against it. Right uh, now, let's, yeah. I'm just, just not sure that. Just, it, I would have said that if you go back more than a, more than a century or two, it couldn't happen because we would have all died if we had, had had a lockdown. That is to say, that part of what's going on is we have a very rich society by historical standards, so we can sort true. of afford to have half the people sit on their hands and that you know too. without dying. All those reasons. Yeah. Um. I want to come back to this thing of, of this of this you know technologically enabled uh, new sovereign workforce, yes. and bearing in mind that something like fifty percent of government revenue in the developed world comes from income taxes, and there's going to be a significant part of the workforce maybe not paying income taxes anymore, mm -hmm. just at such a time when you know governments, particularly in this post-corona world, have pledged all sorts of uh, spending and have all sorts mm -hmm. of spending obligations. Um, they're going to find themselves in a bit of a pickle. And there's three ways by which they seem to be paying uh, those obligations. And I, I expect those will continue, but I'm interested to get your opinion on this. One is direct taxes and indirect taxes, income tax, VAT, sales taxes, and so on. Um, another is debt, which I describe as a taxation on the future. And the third way is debasing money, money and quantitative easing and you know what once upon a time would have been called inflation, but now as you know now it's called but, stimulus or whatever but in a, words but, but in a sense the, the 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 fourth way is to explicitly uh renege on their on on their loan obligations that is to yeah. say you're doing it implicitly if you inflate but you can also do it explicitly as countries very occasionally do yeah well do you think do you think america and western europe will reach the fourth way i don't know I don't know enough. I think it would be hard for the U.S. and that 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 in the trouble with inflation, of course, trouble with inflation in particular is that then your interest rates go up a whole lot because people anticipate inflation. Uh, so, did you notice they just changed the way they're measuring inflation this week in the U.K.? You I probably did not. didn't notice they just <laughs> just changed their measure 
in order that they can carry on understating it. Yeah, that I don't know, but 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 in a sense, I, I my impression is that it, that in the U.S. and probably elsewhere, that government debt has tended to become a good deal more short term, due to the fact due to to people worrying about anticipated inflation and therefore charging for it. Um, and insofar as that ends up happening, you then have a real problem for the government because it's true you can inflate away, but if you're inflating away at a serious rate, then suddenly you can't borrow anymore because you're borrowing, you have to pay very high interest rates uh, to, to, to compensate for the anticipated inflation. So I don't know, I don't know what's, yeah. I find predictions pretty hard to do. Uh, so, so I'm not sure, uh, especially about the future as somebody put it a long time ago, uh, but yeah, no, there, it's an interesting question of what the, which I haven't thought about as much maybe as I should have about how, given that we've had, at least in the US and I assume other places, a extraordinarily high deficit spending justified by the emergency situation. And I think in California, at least, one of the interesting things happening was that I believe the state government took the position they were giving everybody a 10% uh, wage cut government employees because they were running out of money essentially because of what they were doing mm. for trying to deal with COVID. And I guess the theory was that an emergency not only made people willing to put up with more government interference, it also made it more politically possible to cut the amount that government was paying its employees, uh, which seems a little odd, but yeah, I don't know. No, I think you're this, raising interesting questions. There are questions I'd want to think about more before having an opinion okay. on what's likely to happen. This this new sovereign workforce that I'm pinning all my hopes yeah. on, uh -huh. um, one of the things it will hopefully do is, as you say, countries will compete to attract it and so offer low rates and various other things. Yeah. Um, and so hopefully that- Are there countries that do will, that now? Are there countries at the moment- starting to do it, They're starting to do it in China. There's one city that apparently has been already designed in anticipation of it. I think in Lisbon and Lisbon is, I think they just te tend to go where property's cheap, internet's good, lifestyle is good. And I know that Lisbon is one of the go-to places, Chiang Mai, I mentioned. Um, but I think we'll see, we'll see it more explicitly as, as city finances become more um, pressed. But so, you know, that's one force that we will see globally for less mm. government in a, in a world at the moment where all the forces seem to be for more government, um, how do we how do we achieve our anarcho-capitalist dream? How do we impose libertarianism in the world? Do we just do it with our own feet and our own actions, or is there are there ways by which we can you know stop the ever-expanding tide of government? That is, you're suggesting that you stop it for yourself by being more mobile. And the, yeah. other, the other thing that you can do on a larger scale is to make the equivalent of what we now get from governments more nearly available in a non-geographic form. Sort of Bitcoin is an obvious example. And hopefully somebody will come up with a variant on Bitcoin that doesn't have its various inconveniences, but has its advantages. But the other thing, and I don't know what extent it's developing, probably has at least for businesses, is contract enforcement that's not geographical. So if you think about mechanisms by which people who are interacting online 
can make enforceable contracts. And there's certainly mm. the whole literature on smart contracts where you're trying to get in effect the computers to the software to do the enforcement and you can do enforcement with, with, with individual uh, arbitrators available and so forth. So it would seem to me that the clearest place at the moment other than, other than money where you could develop a non-geographical sort of market government substitutes probably is contract enforcement. But I think, mm -hmm. I, think, I think other forms of law enforcement are going to be much harder, that you're much more dependent on the local government for police to keep somebody from breaking into your house. But since contracts are initially done consensually, you can consensually agree to a mechanism. And there are basically, I think, two, well, maybe three mechanisms you can do it by. One of them is posting a bond. So you can say, all right, when we sign the contract, <coughs> each of us gives the trusted arbitrator <coughs> $10,000 worth of Bitcoin. And it's agreed that if one of us violates the contract, his money forfeits to the other. So that's a way of enforcing it. The other form of enforcement that I've discussed at various points in the past is reputation. So if you have mechanisms where individuals ha have a reputation, which may very possibly be tied to their online identity, not their real space identity, that makes you much safer from government. Then if you've got good mechanisms by which I can find out what your reputation is and you can use your reputation as it were to bond your contracts. And I've discussed that in a number of places in, in print, how you can, how you have ways of doing that in particular, that the existence of uh, public key encryption and of digital signatures means there be a long talk, but basically the essential requirement for reputational enforcement to work is that the cost to interested third parties of finding out who defaulted on the contract is low. And if you can make it low, then if you default on the contract, nobody else will deal with you. There's actually a line of, in, in Heinlein's novel, Moon is a Harsh Mistress, uh, they have laws on earth about everything, even about private contracts. If a man doesn't keep his contract, who will do business with him? Uh, and uh, so I think you can improve on those mechanisms for your digital nomads. I'm not sure what else the digital nomads really need, as it were. Uh, yeah. Do you see, I mean, I see the world getting ever, I see government growing. I don't see any, any, any. Well, in, ter in terms of actual government expenditure, the US government's fraction of national income hasn't changed a lot in like the last 50 years. Uh, I don't know about other countries. Uh, it may be higher at the moment. That is both Bush and Trump pushed expenditure up pretty high, but the general trend has been surprisingly close to a flat line in expenditure, although I think that in non-expenditure powers, governments has continued to grow. Uh, government's about 40% of GDP in the US, isn't it? Sounds right, state and federal combined. Yeah, 35 yeah. or 40, I think it may be. We want to get it down to 15, don't we, uh, David? I want to get it down to zero, but uh, 15 would be a great improvement. But 15, you realize, is already substantially higher than it was through the 19th century. The yeah. typical figure in the 19th century for the U.S. at least was about 10 percent, and yeah. of that 10 percent, the federal was the Which smallest. Which goes all the way part. back to the tithe, doesn't it? Yeah, well, that that of course would be Parkinson's number of 10 percent. Uh, the 
Yes. Uh, but in any case, the yeah, I'm just thinking about what else. If I if I think about your digital nomad world, and we assume it's big enough, so it's a real pot. So it's so it's a world the size of a fair sized country at least, but a non geographical yeah. one. And I'm wondering. It seems to me that that a different activity that is very important to humans is mate search. And I'm wondering to what extent some of the social functions that we now do geographically uh, could be done better than they now are. To some extent, you've got computer dating at present, which is an attempt to do mate search online rather than in real space. And, mm -hmm. and it works very well. Well, how well it works is not clear. Uh, I have two adult children who both would like to find spouses for themselves and are both tied down by COVID and their reports of their successes with OkCupid are not very positive. Uh, so that could- that, Where that, are they both in California? Both in California, yes. Uh, and living with us. Uh, the nice thing about our situation for the COVID, we've been self-quarantining since mid-March when I stopped, uh, my, my younger son persuaded me by email that this time was serious. And I was on a speaking trip in Europe and I canceled the last two talks and flew home. And since then we've been self-quarantining quite tightly. Uh, yesterday for Thanksgiving was the first time that somebody not a member of my immediate family has been in my house since mid-March, I think. And that was one person we knew who had been as careful about self-quarantining as we had and didn't have a Thanksgiving arrangement and we wanted to have a guest for Thanksgiving. Uh, but that was the first time. However, uh, I live with my wife and two adult children. We all get along very well. Uh, my, I'm retired and writing books. My uh, daughter is a self-employed uh, online editor, freelance editor. Uh, so she's part of your digital nomads already, although she in fact is not very nomadic. She lives here, but she accompanied me on a trip that included India a few years ago and she was doing the same work in Delhi as she was doing at home because mm. it was all online. Uh, so we've got four of us who get along fine. Uh, but, but anyway, the, the, I'm just thinking about, as it were, market infrastructure that can develop for your digital nomads. And that's going to be one important part of it. Uh, in general, socializing, uh, because that's part of part of what's depressing about being traveling is that you don't have social ties that are staying stable, as it were. But there mm -hmm. can be because you I mean, I, I have online friends who as I say, well, I've never met uh, and uh, still think of as friends. So, yeah, huh? No, interesting thought. And it 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 may end up that you will be end up with smaller government quite inadvertently, as it were, as a side effect of that. That's an optimistic view of the future. Uh, I don't know if it's right okay. or not. At what point can well, we, David, I, you know, go on? I was wondering at what point could governments get worried about enough about it so that they would start actions to try to prevent it? That when I when I discuss when, the, when they start the, losing, when somebody does a spreadsheet and they realize how much revenue they've lost to it. And the question is, can they cartelize? Uh, I don't know. They might have to do land taxes or something. I don't know. Well, but can land they, sorry, can they cartelize? What did they say? Can what they cartelize? Can the, can, the, can the government stop competing with each other? To what extent? And it depends a lot on how many of them there are. 
That is to well, say, well, I mean, if you if you a, a good analogy is globalized companies, you know, yep. companies like say Google or Amazon or hmm. or or you know Apple or someone, and the reaction of these companies was to go and um, base themselves either in the in Ireland or in uh, Holland because yep. of the low corporate tax rates, and they sort of forced America you know, to change their tax laws and, and do cut them a deal. Mm. So that it did kind of work because America reduced its corporate tax rates and, yes. and you know, in order for them to, to re, repatriate. Some, some, the reaction of the EU was not so much to attack the, the corporate, you know, the, the reaction of the EU was to try and impose some kind of digital transactions tax, some kind of digital tax, uh, to try and um, go to the harmonization of taxes around Europe and stop Ireland and Holland, mm. you know, cheating as mm -hmm. it sees it. So there's a pressure, there's a political pressure, not on the corporations so much as on the, you know, to, as on the countries that are operating the free tax things. So, so there's all sorts of different forces at play, but ultimately America lowered its tax rates. Yeah. But so, as I've been saying for a long time in a different context, but it's relevant here, that the nice thing about China is that it's powerful enough so that the US can't push it around and it's different enough so we'll want to ban different things. And I've thought about that in the context of technological change where my, I'm generally an optimist on technological change. I, there are clearly ways in yeah. which it can make us worse off, but I think on net it'll make us better off. Any particular change, there are gonna be interest groups that are harmed by it and therefore political pressure against it for various reasons. Mm -hmm. But a technology only has to develop in one place. And once it develops in one place, everybody else has to use it because otherwise they fall behind. And the yeah. nice thing about China is that if, if let us say, people start worrying about anti-aging research, that's one which I'm interested in because I'm old now. Uh, and you could certainly Too see- Too late people, for you, David. You could certainly see, see a government, uh, say the US government saying, wait a minute, if they really extend if they increase life expectancy by another 20 years, Social Security goes bankrupt. Uh, now there's gonna be pressures the other direction, but even if the US tries to shut it down, China or India or somebody else will, will keep going on it. Uh, but similarly here, that I could imagine if the, if the developed world consisted entirely of the US and the EU, I could imagine they're making a deal where they basically say, we won't accept your digital nomads, you won't accept our digital nomads in some form. Uh, I've thought the yeah. context in which I've thought about this is in terms of an anarcho-capitalist society. If I ask, what are the failure modes of, a, of, of anarcho-capitalism? And one failure mode is that you have only a small number of rights enforcement agencies. They could get together and say, wait a minute, robbery is more profitable than business we will agree that we won't accept your customers and you won't accept our customers and now we can both raise our prices. And that's doable if you have three agencies, it's not doable if you have a hundred. And the question is in the present world where what you have are geographical enforcement agencies, namely countries, what are the limits on their ability to, <clears throat> to form the equivalent of a cartel? And my guess is, as I say, that it was just the US and the EU, they can do it but there's a limited amount of power that any of us have over New Zealand or Australia or China yeah. or India or 
or maybe even Estonia, uh, and therefore yeah. it's going to be very hard. And and one of the ni other nice things that's happening, of course, is that the rest of the world, parts of the rest of the world, are getting developed. So that that again, something I've been saying for a long time is that for the last couple of hundred years, all that really mattered was European civilization. And the first break in that was Japan. The first break in that, in fact, was the Battle of Tsushima Straits, where Russia, which was a second rate, but developed power, sailed its Baltic fleet or halfway around the world only to get sunk by the Japanese. And that suggested that finally a non-Western culture was beginning to be able to compete with the Western cultures. Mm -hmm. And Japan obviously has done it entirely at this point. China has now come back online. And to some extent it did earlier with Taiwan and Hong Kong and Singapore, but now with China proper is, is, is again beginning to matter, so to speak, in the same sense. India, I think maybe the Islamic world hasn't yet, unfortunately, but it would be nice Nice to imagine at least a world where the other ancient civilizations are again real players, if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. uh, and that'd be a more interesting world, but it would also be a more competitive world because the America and Europe, maybe even including Australia and New Zealand, are in a sense a single culture. Single cultures can all go wrong the same way, uh, but it's going to be harder for the world to go, go wrong the same way. That's, so that's part of what I'm optimistic about, actually. Uh, well, it's good to hear. Good to hear. We've good to hear some optimism. I, I I'm feeling. I, I, I change my mood depending on which way the the wind's blowing. But I'm I'm not feeling quite so optimistic today. David, as we close, if yes. there's one book that we should read of yours, um, which which book should should that depends on what you want, want to, know. to know. That depends on what you well, want. Well, you, you want if you, you want to understand. I, I wanna, if you which want to understand you economics. Want, okay, let me rephrase the question. Which yeah. book do you want us to read? Probably still and my is first. It Salaman. Pro probably first uh, Machinery of Freedom, third edition, uh, which has a hundred pages that weren't in the second edition. Uh, and because that, that that's probably been my most influential book and it's the book that is doing things that nobody else is doing really. Uh, whereas Hidden Order, I think does a good job of teaching economics and making it fun to learn economics, but I'm not the only person doing that. Uh, and similarly, my Law and Econ book, if you're interested in Law and Econ, I think it's certainly worth reading, but there are other people doing Law and Econ, some of them doing it reasonably well. Uh, and my latest nonfiction book, which is Legal Systems, very different from ours, is a lot of fun. And if what you want is some picture for the diversity of different ways human societies can organize themselves, it's, it's worth reading. But I would still say that I probably <coughs> made more of a useful contribution to the conversation with my first book, which was written, God, more than 40 years ago, maybe almost, almost 50 years ago now. Probably was written 50 years ago, it was probably published 48 years ago or something like that uh, than anything else. Good but stuff. It's also well, my blog, of course. And we can get, and um, we can read that at davidfriedman.com, is it? Uh, there's a link at daviddfriedman.com. My, web, my website, you need the middle initial. Somebody else grabbed davidfriedman.com a few months before I tried to. But davidfriedman.com will give you links to a fair number of my books. 
most of my articles, including my Size of Nations, my old Size of Nations article, which I'm still rather proud of, the, I came across something somebody had done, which was a review article on economic theories of the Size of Nations. And the first article is mine. The next article is 10 years later by Jim Buchanan. And then there are some books later than that by other people. I know that was sort of me having started off that field as it were, and then abandoned it. I, I believe in fire and forget as the appropriate strategy because otherwise people spend all their lives defending their first article. Good stuff. Well, David D. Friedman, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and, and meeting you, if only virtually. And um, once again, thank you very much.